Okay, I'm pulling on my driveway. We all know what that means. It's time for another drive to work. Okay, today I'm gonna. This is the third part of our invitational series. So I've been doing this mega series in which I talk about the Magic Slash Duelist Invitational. Um, the first time I talked about the first two, which were in Hong Kong and then Rio de Janeiro. Uh, the first one was won by Ularade. Second one was won by Darwin Castle. Both would go on to become Hall of Famers. Um, the second podcast I talked about Kuala, I talked about um, Barcelona, won by Mike Long, and Kuala Lumpur, won by Chris Bakula. Both of which I believe should be in the Hall of Fame, but currently neither are. Um, and then the um, today I'm going to talk about the next two, which are. Um, no, which are uh, Sydney and Cape Town. Okay. So, where to begin? Oh, before I begin, somebody pointed out that last time um, I talked about Barcelona, but I didn't talk too much about uh, the winner or the winner's card. So I thought I would talk about that for a second. Um, so basically, here's what's going on. Was the finals in Barcelona was between American Mike Long and Sterla Bingen from Norway. Um, now, Mike Long, for those that don't know, is a pretty controversial figure in Magic's history. Um, he's someone who I've been championing to be in the Hall of Fame, but uh, he has a shady past, and a lot of people do not believe he's supposed to be in the Hall of Fame. Uh, there's a lot of disagreement, uh, I guess, in what the Hall of Fame is for. Um, although, the whole one of these days I'll do a Hall of Fame um, podcast, because there's a lot of cool stuff. Anyway, I don't need to get into the Hall of Fame stuff right now, but... Uh, um, Mike Long uh, was on four national teams, three of which, or four, all four of which won. Uh, yeah, he's been on many, many winning uh, world team championships. He has four Pro Tour top eights to his name. He won Pro Tour Paris. Uh, he's won at least one Grand Prix. Anyway, um, M- Mike is a pretty uh, well-known figure from Magic's past. Uh, one of the top deck builders of all time. Anyway, Mike had come in uh, top two in Hong Kong, and uh, he didn't win, Ula beat him, but he managed to finally beat Sterla and win an Imitational in Barcelona. So the card he made was Rootwater Mage. I was sorry, Rootwater Thief. Uh, and Rootwater Thief, he really wanted it to be a merfolk. So one of the problems at the time was, um, the previous year, um, Ule originally had not turned in a card, and so the first person to turn the card was Darwin at Rio, and he had made Avalanche Riders, uh, and because I was the guy who was concepting the card, I gave them a picture of Darwin, and Darwin's picture appeared on the card. And that set the precedent of, okay, the winner appears on the card. But Mike Long wanted to make a merfolk, and we were in, uh, it was in Mercadian Mass, in which the merfolk really, really did not look human. And so um, the solution they came up with was that Mike was the one being attacked by the merfolk, by the Rootwater Thief, and it was not the Rootwater Thief. Um, so that was the first card that established that, well, the winner will be in the air, but not necessarily representing the creature, because if the chosen creature wasn't something that was human-looking, well, then it couldn't be um, the winner. Okay, so let's move on to Sydney. Okay, so remember last year, or last time, in Kuala Lumpur, um, or the last invitation which was in Kuala Lumpur, Chris Pakula won, uh, and when he won it, or in, or in order to win it, I guess it's better to say, he had gone to Dave Humphreys, and Dave Humphreys was a very good deck builder, and Dave had prepared for the event, and Chris had not prepared that much, and Chris knew that Dave had decks, he had made decks for the event, and so he went to, to Humphreys and he said, okay, if you 
loan me your decks and I win, I will fly you to the next Invitational, no matter where it is. Uh, and it turned out to be in Sydney, Australia. So it was a pretty expensive ticket. But Chris Pakula, a man of his word, he, in fact, flew Dave Humphreys to the Grand Prix. If remember, there always is a Grand Prix done in association with um, the Invitational. Um, that was true of everyone but the very first one because there were not, as I explained in my first podcast, uh, there was going to be the very first, the very first Grand Prix ever was going to be in Hong Kong and it got canceled. And part of trying to make up for the event was bringing the Invitational there. Um, but after that, all the other Invitationals were held. There were Grand Prix at the events. Um, so we were off to Sydney, Australia. And I was very excited because I had always, always wanted to go to Sydney, Australia. Um, it is one of the countries I'd always wanted to visit. Uh, I would later, Worlds would later be in Sydney, so I would have a chance to go back. But this was my first chance to visit. I had a great time. I really, really enjoyed Sydney. It's one of my favorite places I visited um, in all my magic travels. Um, and my wife, in fact, my wife and I and my six-month-year-old daughter, Rachel at the time, my oldest, but at the time with my only daughter, uh, took the trip. And we went a, a week early so we could see all the sights, and it was beautiful, and we saw all sorts of fun things. And then as soon as the players showed up, it started raining, this downpour raining. Um, and so what happened was, we always do a tour. Or at least, the Invitational was broken up to phases, if you will. The first phase of which, this, the first three podcasts are about the first phase of the Invitational, which is the travel the world phase, where local offices would have us come there, we would, uh, we would fly there, and then we would always have a tour. And so the tour of um, Sydney, we were on a bus... And they were taking us to famous places, but it was a torrential downpour. Now, be aware, my wife and I had come earlier, but they'd been sunny and nice and beautiful. But as soon as the, the player showed up, just an utter downpour. Now, we were inside for the, for the event, so it raining wasn't a giant deal for the event, but it was a big deal for the tour day. Um, and, in fact, if you ever see the official pictures, what we had done was we had stopped in front of, we were across the waterway from the Opera House. The Sydney Opera House is probably the most famous, you know, iconic building in Sydney. And so we were posed in front of it. And so what happened was, one person would come out for the picture, uh, and then um, I was out there helping wrangle, wrangle the people with, the, with our photographer, and it was just torrential downpour rain. So you ever see the pictures, it is all the people participated in the Sydney uh, Invitational drenched to the bone. Um, and to be fair, the players were pretty good spirits. They were having fun, and we were goofing around, so it, it turned out to be a fun tour, if not a, uh, you know, it, 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 we didn't quite see the sights as well as we could have. It, uh, the rain kept that from happening, but we had a lot of fun. It was definitely um, high spirits, and people were very excited to be in Sydney. So the way it worked was, um, back then, I used to, when I had the luxury of time, we would spend four days in the Invitational. What we would do is spend the first three days playing five rounds, usually five rounds a day. That'll change here in a second, I'll explain. And then we'd play the final at, at the, uh, on the last day. Um, because we were tied to an association with a Grand Prix, um, we would always play the final two days at the Grand Prix on Saturday and Sunday. Uh, but the first two days often were somewhere else. In this case, we played at the hotel. Now, some previous invitationals, the hotel was where the event happened, but that was not true here. So we actually... Um, we stayed at, uh, it was called Star City Hotel, I think, which is funny because it had nothing to do with Star City Games, although Star City Games did sponsor our, one of our events. I'll get to that in a second. Um, and we, uh, it was like a casino. It was, it was, it was a very interesting hotel. Um, so there were, we, we rented a, a room 
And so what I had done was, instead of playing five, five, and five, um, we, I actually had five, four, and six. The reason I had four is that we were doing Solomon Draft. Oh, let me talk about my uh, formats, I guess. And then I will explain. Well, I'll, let me finish the story, then I'll get there. Uh, one of the formats we were doing was Solomon Draft, which takes a long time, because before each round, you have to draft again. And the draft itself can take a while. So, and we also, we, we, I don't, uh, in the invitational aren't timed. Uh, or back then, it wasn't timed. Once we got online, it was timed. But it wasn't timed. And um, so anyway, rounds would take like two hours. So I had only had put four, four rounds that day. Um, but the person who was um, booking everything looked at my schedule and said, oh, four rounds, so they'll, they'll be done early. And so they didn't book the room long enough. And in the middle of the, the third or fourth round, I think the fourth round, um, people come in to change the room over because there's like a wedding party or something coming. And we had to get out and we ended up having to go to another room. Um, but anyway, the... Uh, one of the things, by the way, that I always loved with Invitational is we had the luxury of time that we could we could play to the, you know people didn't have to be rushed. There wasn't time limits, and, and it was it's nice. Um, it, it, you get a little spoiled when you're doing uh, 16 person tournaments where you just have you know we had all the ability to make things much much easier than you can when you know it's a 100, 200, 300, 400 person tournament. Okay, so let's talk formats because there are some fun formats at this event. Um, so to refresh everyone's mind, the way it worked is there was always, other, other than the very first Invitation to Hong Kong, uh, all the other Hong Kongs had five formats. Two limited formats and three constructed formats. Um, the limited formats, uh, uh, up until we got onto the computer, uh, it was, there was always a duplicate limited. And what that is, it's a sealed pool where everybody gets the exact same cards. Um, I'll talk about that in a second. Uh... The second thing we would do is we would do usually some kind of draft. Um, in the early days, we did a lot of Solomon drafts. Um, then I would do a normal constructed, something that, that just a normal format that we supported. I would do a constructed, uh, a deck builder's format, meaning I'd give you brand new constraints for something you've never built before and you had built toward it. And then finally, I would try to do something constructed that didn't take a lot of time. Uh, and, and this year, I came up with a very clever idea that would carry off for the rest of the Invitational. Okay. Let's talk formats. So the first format we did was Duplicate Limited. So um, the thing about Duplicate Limited that is fun is Sealed, in general, has a lot of um, randomness and there's a lot of luck to, to Sealed. But Duplicate Limited um, says, okay, let's take the luck out of it. You're going to get a card pool, but you and everybody else should get the same card pool. So there's no luck. And because you know that's what everybody gets, part of building your deck is figuring out what the environment means so that you can figure out sort of, um, you know, it's not just a matter of what's the best deck, but what's the best deck given that everybody has the same deck. And that's an important distinction, that part of what you're trying to figure out is the, the nature of how the, the format's going to work, knowing that everybody has the same thing. Okay, so one of the things I used to do, because it's that's, that on itself is not enough, is I would mix things up. I would, I would have some fun with Duke Unlimited. And so uh, this year, what I did was every single card in the duplicate limited pool was an existing magic card, except I changed the cost. So what I did is I took some cards that were bad, that people never played, and lowered the cost. I took some cards that were really good, that people played all the time, and raised the cost. And the idea was every card was costed such that, is it cleared, you know, should you play this? So the thing that guided me was... 
there's a car called Mishra's uh, War Machine, which I always thought was a decent card, except um, it just was costed poorly and wasn't playable. In fact, a little trivia, uh, I would try to remake the card um, and it end up being the card Mastercore. So, uh, it ended up turning into a very powerful card. So just to tweak the numbers a little tiny bit and it, wasn't, you know, it went from being a not played card to being a, a very dominating card. Um, anyway, I wanted more, uh, Mishra's War Machine to be something that half the people play. Uh, that's my goal. And eight people played it, so I, I, I did it just right. So, by the way, most, uh, I'm starting to get to the point where these invitations have online components that you can go look at. The very, very early ones, I think, have maybe just five the standings. You have to go to the actual Duels magazine to read about them. Uh, but we're now getting to the point where there is coverage online, and so you can go look online and see what we've done, and you can see DAX, you can see the Duplicate Limited Carpool, I believe, you know, and see what I cost of things. Um, but anyway, that was too good limited. You had to sort of make sense of, of the costing. Next, we had bring your own block. Okay, this was the constructed format, the wacky constructed format. So the idea for this format was you got to have three sets. A fall set, a winter set, and a spring set. Um, now remember, this is before we started messing around with having large spring sets. So you had one large set and two small sets. And the idea was, I think you had access to every, every block. You, you didn't have pre-blocks, but you did every block. And so the question was, oh, well, what, what do you want? You know, what cards do you want? And so what, what happened was, people would pick archetypes they were interested in, and then they would look at the availability, and then pick their, pick their um, set choices based on what they wanted to play. You know, if you wanted, for example, to play mono-red, well, oh, well, Tempest had some really good mono-red. Uh, you know, and you, you would look at different things and go, oh, this set had really good mono-red, and you would sort of build off that. Um, it ended up being very interesting. A lot of different sets were chosen. A lot of different archetypes were played. I actually was very happy. Um, oh, by the way, any card that was banned in its own block was banned in the format. And um, this this format would inspire... Um, I would do other formats based on this, where you... One of the things that I, I was experimenting with is the idea that you have access to a whole large card pool, but you can't play everything. You have to pick and choose from the available card pool. Um, Next is Solomon Draft. Um, so Solomon Draft, uh, unlike Duplicate Limited, we didn't do it as, quite every year, but we did it a lot of years. Um, I know we had done it in Kuala Lumpur, and uh, we didn't get in Sydney. Um, the, for those who remember, Solomon Draft is you take cards, um, I think you take five cards, and then you, one player dippies the cards into two piles, and their opponent chooses which one to take, and you get the other one. Then you swap, and then you're, the other player divides the two cards and you pick. Uh, you go back and forth. This is, in my mind, this is one of the most skill-tested drafts there is. It's a two-person two format. Everything is open, meaning as you divide cards, everybody's seeing what's available. So your splits change over time because you have to take into account what your opponent is, is has. You know, let's say your opponent has taken some really good green cards. Well, they now value green higher. When you're making your splits, you have to understand that they value green higher. Um, but they know that they value it higher, but you don't value it as highly. You know, it's a very interesting format. Next, auction of the champions. Okay, so my goal was I wanted to figure out how to have a constructed event that didn't require a lot of prep from the players. It turns out, 
um, than the previous year, we had finally gotten 17 constructed high-level tournament decks. And by high-level, I mean either Pro Tour and or Worlds. Um, the reason I go and or is 96 Worlds forward were Pro Tour, but 94 and 95 Worlds were not. But in order to have enough decks, we included 94 and 95 Worlds. So basically what happened was, it was the uh, 17 uh, Pro Tour slash Worlds winning decks. And then this is how the auction worked. The first person, uh, we seeded you based on how you were doing the tournament. This came midway through the tournament. Uh, the bottom seed went first. They chose a deck. They must then bid on the deck. What bidding on the deck meant was you bid some number of start, starting hand size and a starting life total. Obviously, the highest you could bid, I believe, was seven cards, 20 life. Um, we would later change that in future ones when we have more decks that we'd let you bid above. But anyway, for this one, I believe it was seven cards, 20 life. These are good decks. Um, then you made a bid. Let's say you bid seven cards, 20 life. The next person had to either bid lower or remove themselves from the draft. We all would stand up, and when you dropped out, you would sit down. And so what would happen is, um, the first person would make a bid, the second person would either lo go lower, and not, let's say they want to go low, they might go, okay, seven cards, 18 life. Um, and then people have to keep bidding lower or dropping out until there's only one person left. And the way it worked was cards were, were superseded uh, life total. So if someone bid seven cards, 15 life, you could bid six cards, 20 life. Um, and then each player would go until they had a deck, and then the final person had a choice between two decks to take it, seven cards, 20 life. Um, and so what happened was, um, the, the, the story of the thing was, um, John Finkel ended up getting Zach Dolan's 90, 1994, the very first world championship winning deck, uh, at a steal, I don't remember exactly what, what it was, but it was like seven cards, 19 life, or 18 life, or something super, super high. Um, and uh, that would come in the uh, final time would become very important. Okay, so oh, the final format was what at the time we called classic, and previously it called type one, and we now called vintage. Yes, so at the time there were very few high profile vintage tournaments, um, and so the invitational occasionally would play vintage. Um, the, pl the players, the pros loved playing it. They were very happy with it. Um, so we also played vintage in this match. Okay, so we played the first couple days at the hotel, and then we played the last day at the, the site, and the finals were also at the Grand Prix site, which was in downtown um, Sydney. Uh, okay, so the finals were between John Finkel from the United States and Ben Rupert from the United States. So you don't know who John Finkel is, you probably don't know much about competitive magic. Uh, John, if you were going to say who's the best magic player of all time, uh, it's either John Finkel or Kai Buddha. Um, I personally think of John Finkel, but it's a great argument to make for Kai. Kai has uh, some better results. Kai has seven wins, and John only has three wins. Um, although John is only one of three people that have three wins, and only he and Kai have three individual wins. Dirk Babarowski has one individual two team wins uh, with Phoenix Foundation. Two, two of Kai's uh, seven wins are team wins with Phoenix Foundation, which is Dirk Babarowski and Marco Blue. Uh, but once you uh, once you take out the team stuff, only two people have three individual wins, which is John and Kai, um, as, as it should be. Um, so John is from New York. He played in the very first uh, Pro Tour in the juniors. He quickly got up to the seniors. Uh, at one of the New Yorks, he won his very first Pro Tour. He won his second Pro Tour at Worlds in 2000, in which he both won Worlds. He was the U.S. national champ, won Worlds, and his team won the event. Um, one of the few people 
able to win both the team title and in fact, maybe the only person to win the world champion title and the team title in the same year. Um, and then he won his third one somewhere in Asia, I think it was Paul Lepore. Um And John, by the way, I believe has won a pro tour in three different decades. The 90s, the aughts, and the um, teens. Uh, anyway, the finals was all five formats. That's how we used to do it back then. Um, it, I believe it went down to the fifth format. It often went down to the fifth, so the fifth format. Okay, interesting. Um, and the final format was um, the auction of the champions. So uh, John Finkel had uh, Zach Dole and Zach, uh, seven card in the 18 life. And his opponent, Ben Rubin. Oh, Ben Rubin, by the way, also in the Hall of Fame from America. Um, ben is famous for a, a lot. I think he had a team win, uh, but no individual wins. He did um, come in second at um, Worlds in 1998, being beat by Brian Selden. By the way, in the semis of that Worlds, of 98 Worlds, he played John Finkel in a very high-profile match. Um, this was a repairing, obviously, of that matchup. Uh, and then Ben, Ben would come in second one other time, uh, and then he came in second here. Uh, and ben, ben classically had, had a bunch of very close, you know, almost victories. Um, ben is a very strong player, like I said, in the Hall of Fame, uh, good deck builder. Anyway, uh, the two of them are facing off against each other. Um, we joked it was the grudge match from the, from the world. Um, anyway, in the, in the final match, um, John was playing Zach Dolan's deck, seven cards and 18 life, I believe. And um, Ben was playing uh, Dave Price's Tempest Only deck from the, the third Los Angeles Pro Tour. That was a Tempest Only Pro Tour. And he had it at seven cards, I think 15 life. So he had a lower bid. He was playing a very fast aggro deck. So he a bit lower in life. I think he beat his opponent for his opponent to beat him. Um, so turn one, I don't know if it's game one or game two. I'll explain it's game one. Um, John goes Land, Mox, Black Lotus, Sarah Angel. And Ben Rubin's just doing the math in his head. And like, okay, assuming I have perfect draws, what's the quickest turn I could kill a Sarah Angel? And I think he figured out, like, turn four. Because, like, Kindle, he had, had Kindle's for his kill card. And, like, you know, he had to be able to do two Kindles on one turn, or he had to burn two Kindles in. Oh, that's, maybe he could burn two Kindles, and then, anyway. Um, it required, like, turn three or four is the fastest he could kill it. And what it turned out was, well, Zach Dolan's, people like to laugh at Zach Dolan's deck. Um, I think John's line was, it's, there's some cards in that are kind of janky, but they work well together. And it, John had an admiration. He said the deck worked a lot better than you thought. There was a lot of synergies and a lot of things that didn't seem like they made sense. We started playing it really did make sense. The Zach's deck was not as grand as people wanted to think. Plus, it was a vintage deck. You know, it just could do crazy things like turn one Sarah Angel that the other deck never could match. Um, so John Finkel went on to win. He would turn in a card called Wrath of Lechnif, L-E-K-N-I-F, Finkel backwards, which was an uncountable Wrath of God. Um, development goes, ah, no, and we uh, made him come up with another card. So he turned in a card he called Shadow Mage, um, which was one blue-black, uh, what is it, 2-2? Two, two? It, 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 um, it has fear and it has curiosity, meaning when it hits you, you draw a card. Um, John, actually, here's an interesting trivia. The card John turned in, other than we changed the name and maybe tweaked the creature type, did not change. Cost didn't change. The abilities didn't change. That card, as John turned it in, is what got printed. Okay, so now we move on to Cape Town. Um, so one of the interesting things is the Invitational 
actually managed over the course of its 11 years to visit every single continent. This was our one trip to Africa. In fact, I've only been to Africa and South America once, uh, and both of those trips were for the Invitational. The Invitational actually got me to every continent save Antarctica on the planet Earth. Um, anyway, I was very excited to go to South Africa. Um, it was a long travel. It took me 30 hours of travel. I had to fly through London. Go look at a globe and you'll say, that seems kind of crazy, but it's not a lot of places fly to South Africa, so I had to go through London. Um, it was a hoot. Uh, it was very, very interesting. I had never been to Africa before. Um, our, tour do- our tour day was amazing. Um, we went to uh, see wild animals. I petted a cheetah. We went to different wine... Fe- uh, wine um, Wine. Uh, there's a fancy term for vineyards. Um, we went out to watch sharks. I mean, it was it was pretty. It was it was impressive. In fact, by the way, my favorite. Here's my favorite. This wasn't on the tour day. This was the day before. We got there, and uh, the, the local people, you know, the local offices said, "Hey, you guys want to go out and see something cool?" And I'm like, "Of course." Uh, and so they took us in a van, and we went to like a beach, and we got out on like the pier or the walkway on the, and on the sand as far as you can see penguins just penguins as, like a beach full of penguins now you think of penguins as living in very very cold climates this wasn't cold um, they actually can live in other climates but anyway it was like this sea of penguins by the way some, when I was there somebody from the office took a picture of me with the penguins which I never ever got the picture so if anyone hearing this has that picture of me just with like a billion penguins I would love to have that picture um, it was it was amazing. It was one of my most interesting things I saw in, in uh, Cape Town. Which you said to me, what's the most amazing thing I saw in Cape Town? Penguins might not be what you expected. Okay, so um, the formats for this one, we also get duplicate limited again. But this time, the twist was always a twist. Um, what I did was I um, uh, every single card in the format was one drops, uh, and not only that. I made up some of the cards. Not all the cards, but I made up some of the cards. For each color, I made up maybe a handful of cards, eight cards or so. And so, it really was... Remember, I get into the normal amount of building time, half an hour or something. So not only did they have to build a deck, they had to understand the environment. But what does it mean when every single person playing only has one drops? What does that mean? What's your curve like? How much land do you play? You know, you had to figure that all out. Um, we did a format called Five Color, which was very popular at the time, also known as 250. Uh, it was a format where you had to play 250 cards, you had to play a certain number of cards of every color, uh, and you played for ante. The format lets you play Contract from Below, what I think is the most broken card in all magic. Um, and the way the format worked was winning was not winning the most games, but winning the most value of the cards you won in ante. So you would, you would, uh, we used Scry Magazine to determine stuff, and then whoever had the highest value of cards they won would win the, form, win the, the, the match. Um, that would that would come in to be, make a very wonky final. We'll get to that in a second. Um, next, we, our draft was called artistic draft. This is the draft I made for the event. So normally when you draft, you draft 15 cards of a booster. Or artistic draft, which is based on um, uh, fantasy football drafts, you have the entire roster, or in this case, the entire set. Odyssey was the set in question for this event. So you were drafting an entire set. Eight people, there were two drafts, including two. And that eight-person person would draft the entire Odyssey set, and then you would play. Um, that, by the way, the patricia format's going on to actually uh, have a little life of its own. People do patricia drafts now, and I'm very excited. Um, I, I used to use the Invitational to make up formats, so I'm very excited when formats would catch on. 
Max played standard, you know, nothing new. Uh, at the time, by the way, the Pro Tour was not playing standard, so having standard at a high-level event was, a, was something that was a little bit different, and we did get some high-profile people playing standard. Finally, it was auction of the people. So what had happened was I loved the auction format, but we didn't have, you know, there weren't 17 more, more constructed winning decks. So I came up with the idea of what I called auction of the people. Uh, I wanted to find a way to get the audience invested more, so what I did was I said to the audience, okay, um, I want you to build our decks, and I picked a theme. So the first day, the theme was tribal, meaning you had to build your deck built around a creature type. Uh, and people had a great time. And we, built, we, we, we chose 17 different decks. I had a series of judges. Um, and they were all, I mean, they were the decks you would expect, you know, goblins and elves and stuff, you know. Um, like, all the decks were 60 cards. Someone had made a 40-card dwarf deck. Um, Jay Moldahar Salazar, who would later go on to write the very first... Um, a deck of cards, the Johnny Column on our website, and this is one of the places I first learned about him, made a clam deck with one Mox Pearl. Uh, there was a chicken deck, there was a knight deck, there, there was all sorts of decks. It, it was a, a lot of fun. Um, the players drafted just like they drafted Auction Champions, except I think um, we started with eight cards. Um, eight cards, 20 life, maybe even eight cards, 25 life, just because some of the decks were... were let's say, more challenging. Because Auction of the Champions, they were all good decks. Some of these decks we picked were were more fun, and so we allowed players to start with a higher life total. So, you know, that maybe you get a, uh, a wacky deck, but you could start with eight cards and 25 life. And so that would t- make people willing to take a little crazier decks, you know, to do that. Um, so the event was held, um, I think, at the hotel. Um, it was a very, very poshy hotel we stayed at. Um... And the finals ended up be- between Kai Buda from Germany and Dan Clegg from the United States. So Kai Buda, for those who do not know, the German juggernaut, um, considered by some to be the best Magic player of all time. Uh, he won seven Pro Tours. He's been in a couple other... I think he has nine or ten top eights. Uh, John is 13. Um, I think he's 13. Maybe he's 14 now. Um, I think he has 13. Uh, what else to say about Kai? I mean, he was... A, a dominant, dominant force. Obviously, he's in the Hall of Fame. Um, he just an awesome, awesome, awesome player. I mean, I not much I can say about about Kai. If you don't know much about Kai, read, read some. Uh, like I'm saying, he's one of the true all stars of the game, if not the best Magic player ever, Pro Tour player ever. Um, he was playing a guy named Dan Clegg. Dan Clegg was from the United States. Um, Dan Clegg was a tournament regular. Obviously, he made it to the Invitational. Um, He's kind of known for, for being slow. That was kind of his rep in that. He was very methodical, but just he played very exactly and, and was slow. Um, I, Dan didn't have a lot. Of, he didn't have any wins, big wins to his name, but he, um, like I said, he was just a, a solid performer, and obviously he had done well this year enough to get into the Invitational. Um, so once again, it went to all five formats, uh, and the final format was five color. Um... So remember, this is the format where you had a 250-card deck, you had to have so many of every color card in your deck, and you were playing for ante. Um, so what happened was, I forget who won game one. Uh, I think Dan won game one, and then Kai won game two. But what happened was, Kai's win, he just got a, a, a card of a higher value than Dan. Uh, and so what happened was, in the final game... Dan had a win and had to get a card of value high enough that he would, you know, add it to the other card he had gotten would be better than Kai's card. 
Uh, and so the game came down to Kai Buddha casting a card called Jeweled Bird, which goes back to, I think, Arabian Nights. Anyway, it's a card that allows you to swap your ante for another ante card of your choice. Uh, and so what uh, Kai did is he just swapped his card for a card of lesser value. So no matter who won, he was going to win because Dan wouldn't be able to get past the value of his card. Uh, and so really it was anticlimactic. I mean, it, uh, we, we joked about it being Jeweled Bird for the win, uh, which essentially it was. Um, I mean, they finished the game, and I think Kai won the third game, but it, it didn't really matter when I understood that Kai had won. Um, so anyway, Kai made a card called Void Mage Prodigy. Um, what happened was we tweaked it a bit because we were trying to tie it into the theme of Onslaught, which was tribal, um, and so we made it a wizard tribal card, so I care about wizards. It actually was a pretty good wizard tribal card, but because blue had been so good in the metagame, uh, R&D had nerfed wizards, and so we made it a very good card in a tribe that didn't have support, and so the card at the time did not get played. It's since been played in some larger formats because it is a good card. Um, oh, another thing that happened was when we got the art back, we weren't super happy. Um, not that the art didn't look good, but it didn't look enough like Kai. We wanted it to look like Kai, and so we later did a promotional card to redo it to get it a little, little, little bit more like Kai. And whenever we've been reprinting things like that, such as on I think the bonus sheet, we use that picture of, of Kai. Anyway, so I'm here at work. Um, so let me wrap up my story. So uh, Cape Town was the last of what I call. Well, not the last, but of the world spanning. The, the first portion of the Magic Invitational was us traveling all around the world, going to every continent, and uh, Cape Town would be the last of that era of the Invitational. Um, as we'll talk about next time, which, by the way, this is a mega story, so it won't be next week, but when we come back to this, um, I'll leave this little story, which I'll pick up in my next podcast, which is, right after Cape Town, I get called to the office of the head of Organized Play. And he says to me, he goes, Mark, sit down. He goes, Mark, I want you to know, I'm, I'm a fan of the Invitational. I like the Invitational. I, I want to see the Invitational continue. Um, the only problem is I have to cut your budget. And so I say, oh, okay, okay, okay you know, I, I can, well, so what's the budget? He goes, nothing. You have no budget. But I would like to see you find a way to keep it alive. And that, my friends, is where we end for today. I was told that the Invitational had budget of zero, but I, I was not going to give up the fight. So next time, we'll talk about how exactly did I run an Invitational with a budget of zero. Anyway, thanks for joining me today. Um, it was fun talking about both Sydney and uh, Cape Town. Interestingly, it was the Invitationals won by the two best Magic players to ever play Magic. Um, one of the things, by the way, real quickly I want to mention is that one of the reasons I think if you look at the winners of the Pro Tour, I'm sorry, of the Invitationals, look, look at the first six years. You have Hall of Famer Ularati, Hall of Famer Darwin Castle. Um, Michael Long, who should have been the Hall of Fame, but obviously he's not. Um, uh, Chris Bakula, who, who's missed getting in the Hall of Fame by votes numerous times. Uh, and then uh, John Finkel and Kai Buda, uh, both in the Hall of Fame. And the reason I think that such high-caliber players win the Invitational is it's a hard format. You know, you know winning a Pro Tour, you know, winning a high-level event is hard. Winning a high-level event with one format is hard. Winning a high-level format with five formats is even harder. Winning with five formats that are crazy, wacky, very, you've never done them before formats is even harder. Doing that against the best 16 players in the game is even harder. And doing that all in a one period of, you know, round-robin thing 
it's a challenge. I think the Invitational is one of the hardest tournaments to win. Um, I know players would come in with a fun attitude, and there wasn't the prep that you would normally see in a pro tour, but it is a very hard thing to win. That's why the caliber of the player was so good. Anyway, um, thanks for talking to me today. I'm glad. I, like I said, I love talking about magic. I love talking about the Invitational. But you know what else I like to do? I like making magic. So great talking with you guys, and I'll talk to you next time.